Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, just so you know, this conversation gets a little intense, so we've decided to include a content warning. You can find out more detail in our show notes. Hi, I'm Susan Kalman, and welcome back to Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside. Thanks for downloading the show. And there's not many other careers that are like that, where you feel shit before, during, and after. <laughs> there's not, because most of them, you always feel good after. You're like, oh, finish work, yeah, yeah. free. But comedy, I, we've all had it where we've been in the shower and we're like, ah, oh, ah, let me just wash what happened to me 10 years ago. Last year, I spoke to eight people about their tricksy mental health, and this year, I'll be chatting to eight more. There is that thing of, oh, comedy is, is therapy, and I've never had uh, therapy before, but I, I definitely think therapy would be probably be better. I'm doing this because I want people to be more open about their mental health, and I know sometimes it can be difficult to define what that means. So we're going to be having a frank and open discussion, no parameters, no written questions, no definitions, and no pop psychology. There was a comedian in there who was like, I feel like I need a unique selling point. I mean, I know you talk about your dead dad and his drug dealer and that. And I'm like, I'm like oh yeah, well, looky me. It's important for you to know that these are not therapy sessions. I am not a qualified psychiatrist, no matter how much casualty I've watched. They're just honest conversations about what we think and feel about our own heads. Uh, Darren Harriet's someone who I know of, never met him. But I was fascinated to hear his story because I knew a little bit about it. And the conversation that we had, it really was about everything and anything. It was a fascinating chat. He's an absolute sweetheart. And it really is a wonderful listen. Uh, There's a bit of background noise, but we are in the middle of the biggest arts festival in the world. So just enjoy the texture that you're going to hear. I hope you enjoy it. I did a show, 2008 was probably my worst year. Okay. I was in too big a room. Mm. I was at eight o'clock. That's not my time. Okay, what, what's your time, would you say? Six-ish. Okay, cool. Uh, people aren't too drunk. Yeah. They're looking forward to the night ahead. They've had maybe one drink. Yeah. It's not that I can't handle drunk people, I just hate them. You just, why, why are you paying all this money to do this for drunks? Absolutely. Yeah, completely. So, 125 people sold out on a Saturday, and they'd just come to see anyone. Mm. And they just didn't make a sound for 55 minutes. Oh. But you have to carry on. You do, you got to play for the cameras. Yeah. <laughs> Sell the show. Yeah. <laughs> and I think once you've performed to, to 125 disinterested people, yeah. you can do anything. That's such a, it's such <laughs> a, a, a weird, it's that thing with, um, of comedy where you, you feel like shit before, during and after. Mm-hmm. So like you can have, you, you have a high, like, oh, sold out. It's going to be great. You're high, then you go on, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, you're still thinking about it, it's horrible. And then the next day, you kind of take that with you as well before you go on and you go, oh, I don't want it to be the same as mm-hmm. before. And there's not many other careers that are like that, where you feel shit before, during, and after. <laughs> there's not, because most of them, you always feel good after. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, finish work, yeah, yeah. free. But comedy, I, we've all had it where we've been in the shower and we're like, ah, oh, ah let me just wash what happened to me 10 years ago. 
I think it's sometimes after I've done a so in comedy this uh, corporates are where you are paid usually more money than normal yeah. but I often have to have a a very hot shower with bleach afterwards because it can be quite a difficult experience. It's never enough, is it, what you no. get paid? <laughs> no. You look at you you'll see what you get paid and you might go, Yeah, that's good, but it's never enough. It's never enough. <laughs> yeah. You think it's good at the time you're offered and then you turn up and go, No, that wasn't enough. This I, wasn't enough. I, 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 I've changed my attitude with corporate. I've said no to a lot of corporates. And my attitude now is I'll do some just because I feel like it's a different skill, but I have to have a better attitude going in. Mm-hmm. Because I've had attitudes going in about, fuck, I don't want to do this. Why, why am I even here? Why am I even? And now I'm like, no, no, no. You, you sign the contract. You tell, I always get fearful when they pay it half in advance. I'm always like, ah, <laughs> I'm locked in now for sure. Got no turning back here. Yeah, corporate gigs are, they, they are just... I'm, I know people who love them, who really yeah. just love the idea of, a, of doing a corporate gig. They love that walking into a room that's not really ideal for comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've done a few good ones where it's somebody who's a comedy fan and they actually have a comedy club. They, they'll call it the, I don't know, the, the Lloyd's Bank Comedy Club. And there's like a stage and there's an MC. I'm, I'm big on that. Just have a host. Yes. I've walked into offices before and just been like, here's the comedy. <laughs> um, before we go any further, yeah. uh, we've been recording now for approximately seven minutes and I haven't said who you are. And I mean, I'm not an expert in podcasting, but that would appear to be the wrong way round. And my producer is indeed going, yes, that would be helpful. <laughs> what I always like to do for Mrs. Brightside is to get my guests to say who they are and what they think they do. Because I don't like to say, oh, I've been told you are a, here's your yeah. Wikipedia. So please state your name and what you think you do. Uh, my name is Darren Harriet. Uh, I am a comedian. I, I do stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. I guess I could say I do more than that. But I, I feel like I do stand-up comedy at a decent level, at a required level. I think I do <laughs> stand-up. I've never been one of those comics who can just get overly arrogant. I feel I find it weird when I see um, comics who are just like, "Oh, killed it!" Yeah. Like, how was the gig? Smashed it. <laughs> Destroyed. <laughs> I'm always more like, yeah, they were generous. <laughs> like they were, they were, they were fun. They were nice. Yeah. Whereas, destroyed. Best gig of the night. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's, no, it's amazing. Yeah. So I, I, I do uh, uh, comedy. It's very weird. I'm sure you've had this as well. As the more sort of successful you get, the more you you get pulled in other directions that you didn't expect. I think I think you probably started out like me. Where you, yeah, want to do comedy, be a comedian. You look at a, a circuit guy or girl and you go, oh, I want to be like them. I want to be doing that sort of comedy um, like them and then you, you get an agent and then you, you start getting pulled and you're writing for this and you're doing this and then some book ideas and then TV shows and you're like, Whoa, this is branching out in a way that I never expected yeah. it to. I never thought that I would be able to, you know, uh, multitask in that sort of a way uh, ever. I always just thought I'd just be a, a headliner. Yeah. It was always the dream. I just want to headline the country. I think for me, the, what made me realise I couldn't just be a stand-up comedian was when I started a long time ago, there was a comedy club called Jonglers, which Ooh, I'm sure you yep. know of. But at the time, it was very, very successful. And some people made their entire living from Jonglers. I mean, that's all they did. They earned a really great living from it. And then it went bust. Yeah. And people's careers were ruined. And I always remember thinking, I can never rely on one thing to make my living. Yeah. I have to do lots of different things. Because um, the other thing is, you, you could really annoy someone, and then you never get booked again. You 
you've just said exactly what I was thinking, right? So I, I've been saying this to a lot of uh, the, the uh, sort of the newer acts. My, my thing to them is get out the clubs. Get out the clubs. Clubs are great. They're fun. You enjoy them. You, you work that muscle, but get out the clubs because they're so unreliable. And we've all heard of the stories of a comic who doesn't get booked anymore because they made a joke to a promoter and all of a sudden that's it. I mean, you look at, like, say the comedy store, the, the best comedy clubs in the country. Uh, Don Ward is, runs it. What happens when Don Ward's gone and it goes down? He's, he's a big fan of X, Y and Z comics but maybe the next person in line isn't such a fan. So all of a sudden, you now lose an extra couple of grand every year because of, and it's like, oh, okay, what happens then? And I think the jungle is, yeah, I wasn't really in with jungle as in, I, I was long, uh, uh, not ready for the heyday of the jungle as yeah. anyway. And I'm sure you were there for that. And I, there is a lot of comedians <laughs> who, they just, they weren't willing to go to, leads for a hundred pounds in front of a new promoter. They just weren't willing to do it. And it's it's kind of sad. I always wonder where a lot of those um, people have gone to. I'm, I'm guessing that you've got back to teaching. Maybe they're doing cruise ships or something. Cruise, or ships, something. cruise ships are, I mean, and they're very difficult, talking about difficult yeah. um, gigs. They can be quite, Oof. it's a very certain audience. It's a very certain audience that you have to do. But if, if you were to talk for people listening, my stand-up was always less jokes more stories. I come from a quite a tradition. I think it's from growing up watching Billy Connolly. Yeah. It's funny, but it's it's just storytelling. I want I like the audience to leave knowing a bit more about me than yeah. when they came in. It's just what I like. What's your stand up like? Mine is exactly that. My my whole philosophy with stand up is you might not necessarily like me. Um, just because I have views and um, you know uh, might be different, but you will know about me. You'll know when you get off stage. Is he the sort of guy I want to buy a drink for? Do I want to hang out with this person? I'm, I want a really strong personality on stage that you're either with or you're really against. And I'm okay with either one because all I all we have in this game is our own honesty and our stories and our integrity. So if I, as long as I'm being as honest as I can about who I am. Um, I don't mind if you go, oh, he's not really my kind of a person. That's fine. I like that. I like to have known that I've made a strong enough impression on you completely. I mean, I always like, uh, I always wish I could be one of those uh, fucking comedians who just like, does like jokes about anything. Yeah. You know those comedians who are just like, there are some great guys out there. I was gigging with uh, Glenn Moore recently. I love Glenn Moore. But it's just like, he's just saying jokes. Mm-hmm. All the setups are just... To just get to a joke and you learn nothing about him other than the fact he's like a really good joke writer. And I'm like, gosh, what's that like? How do you remember what order you go? Because you're talking about a joke about a gymnast and the next thing you know, you're talking about the president. And then it's like, where are we going with this? And um, uh, I've always been absolutely amazed by those sort of communities because they're so far away. One of my favorite communities is Tim Vine. I think Tim Vine is absolute genius and an idiot. And I love it. And I just couldn't do that. So when I see people who do that, I go, it's amazing to me. But they added pressure as well. So 2012, I did a show about equal marriage because at that point, um, we couldn't get married. Gay people couldn't get married. Civil partnerships, but I wanted to get married. And I did the show and it was very heartfelt. It was very funny, but it was very heartfelt, which was basically saying I'm a second class citizen in my own country. And I did it and I did it every night here for 20 whatever nights. And then I toured. Yeah. Um, so I think I did about 180 performances. And do you know, by the Jesus. end of it, God, I hated the sound of my own voice. <laughs> and sometimes when you do storytelling shows about important yeah. things, you sometimes regret it. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, it's so important. 
I learned to talk about my mental health so much by doing this job. But sometimes you're reliving it every single time you talk about it. Completely. I, I did my first show uh, three years ago now about my dad. It was basically about my family and my dad. My dad killed himself when I was a kid. And uh, talking about that and, and everything about it, like you get to a point where you just become so numb and it does become a part of the performance. But after a while, you're like, oh, I really don't want to keep saying this. Like, it's, I mean, it's fine. It's a part of the act, but... Ah, oh, kind of go and do, kind of go and have fun. <laughs> like, and then I did a little tour, and that's the, that's when it really hits you. I think Edinburgh, you know, there's this, it's a performance space, it's an arts festival, blah, 40 minute, where's the sad part? All that <laughs> nonsense, right? But then when you're doing it in bloody Stoke on a, in November, you're like, why am I bringing this up? They don't want to hear about my dad's death, who cares right now? So. <laughs> There is that as well. Yeah. I've, I've, I've thought about it uh, quite a lot. And then uh, my second show, last, the show last year, I talked about uh, when I was a teenager, me and my mates, we started a gang. And it was, it was again, kind of the same thing. Where I'm like, who really cares about this? Why can't I go with it? And then, and then I really started to enjoy the parts that were just very outward thinking a little bit more because I felt like it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't putting that much pressure or stress on me. But I feel like I learned so much in doing that in just, in, in like, there is that thing of, oh, comedy is, is therapy. And I've never had uh, therapy before, but I, I definitely think therapy would be probably be better. Like doing stand-up is, is fun, it's nice, but <laughs> if they don't laugh, then you hate yourself more. And that's not, that's not a good give and take for therapy. You have to laugh or else I'm really gonna hate myself, okay? No, you, I definitely feel, and obviously there's, there's, there is no back and forth. It's just they laugh, you talk, and you hope that that works for you. But um, I definitely feel like, especially with the, the, the show that I'm doing now, I feel a little bit, I don't really have those same feelings as I did with the, the, the first and the second show, where it's, you know, it's sometimes, it's inevitable, isn't it? Sometimes it's inevitable. Someone's gonna die or something, it's gonna horrible happen in your life. And, or like you said, the marriage equality, you know, but eventually it does play a part on your, your psyche and your mental health. Also, when I'm with normal people as well, I have no filter in terms of what's, like I've, I've, I've been on a date before and they've asked me about my dad and my parents. I'm like, oh yeah, my dad killed himself or he hung himself in prison. Um, so what about for starters? I'm like, but I'm, cause I'm just so relaxed about it. Yeah. I don't realize, oh yeah, it's quite, it's quite a thing for other people to hear. But because I'm used to just saying it on a stage, every day for the past, I don't know, 50 performances or whatever, yeah. you, it, you, you just, it just... But the thing is, the difference is, so I have um, had therapy. Um, some of it worked, some of it was horrific. Yeah. That's the thing. Just going to therapy itself doesn't help. Okay. It has to be the right therapist. You have to be ready for it, etc., etc. Just the act of, it sounds very New York. I go to my therapist and sometimes therapists are awful. Sometimes they're brilliant, sometimes they're awful. But the thing is, as a stand-up, and one of the things that we do when we do very personal shows, for example, about your dad, is we decide how we're framing this story. Yeah. And no one challenges you on that. Yeah. yeah, the audience may not laugh or not, but what you're not actually doing is having a dialogue. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why personal comedy shows at the Fringe work, is that I am presenting to you, it's like history is written by the victors. Edinburgh shows are written by the comedians yeah. who decide how much I'm going to tell you about this personal thing. Mm. So when you decided to do that first show about your dad, and obviously an issue which not a lot of people talk about, bearing in mind you had to make it funny because it's still a comedy show. Yeah. How did you go about that? Um, it was, I knew that it would be too heavy to just 
do the whole show about it. And the way that my mind always thinks, I'm very much like, okay, I like this bit. I read the news a lot, so can I incorporate this? And I just felt like as a first debut show, the best thing to do is to sort of just tell them who you are. Tell them who you are, tell them where you come from, get that out of the way, and then peppered it in. So I, I remember I sort of just went, I started talking about jokes about my mom, did some lighthearted stuff. I never mentioned my dad's death, but I mentioned he was a drug addict and a drug dealer quite early on, until maybe about 20 minutes in. And then I mentioned my dad died, and then I mentioned uh, again a little bit later on. I just felt like the best way to go about it was to not, was to pepper it throughout the show, because what I didn't want was I never want people to, to pity me or feel sad because at the end of it, it's a comedy gig like I know certain topics are going to be you're going to feel immediately sad but because I mixed it with just actual jokes about other stuff so I remember I talked about like Obama in the show and racism and all this other stuff and I mixed it in it then didn't feel too heavy throughout because I didn't know if I could carry the show back then for 50 minutes if I did go really if you went really hard yeah. in the beginning and said, this is what this is about. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I could have carried it. So I had to start off with, oh, my mum's a bit like this, my dad's a bit like this, my nan, and did all that sort of stuff. And then slowly it sort of unraveled near the end. That, oh, yeah, he, he had drug problems and he killed himself. And then, But I always made sure that when the, when the deep parts came in, there was like a really big joke bit that I was confident with coming up next. Because I just felt like... People really needed that rather than... And the last thing I wanted was people just being sad. And I had that a little bit at my last show as well. I had, I had a few people cry at the end of my show. And I always felt really bad. But they were always like, no, oh, it was just like, you really brought me to tears, really. And I'm just like, ah, is it really, it really kind of... They loved it, but I, I, it was ne it's never been the intention of that. And with this show that I'm currently doing, there is none of that stuff in there, which is great. It's a, and also as well, what happens is, um, and I'm, again, I'm sure you probably had this, uh, that every interview you do afterwards, that show, it's just, they, it's literally people who have come and seen the show, they just bring up what they heard in mm -hmm. the show. So again, you're talking about mm -hmm. like your dad's death in March the next year. Well, PR wants you want to yeah. use it. So again, for people listening, what happens is about November time before the fringe, someone will say to you, what's your show about? Yep. And you say it's about this and they go, no, that's not good enough. You need to have something that it's about. And you go, okay, it's about my dad killing himself. Brilliant. Right. Okay, here we go. Can we get the photos of you holding a noose? Yeah, can you please get them out? It's, it's really, it sounds really horrific, but that's kind of what it happens. Really is. They want the juiciest story you can get with the juiciest pictures to match, and then they sit around with all the reviewers and they go, Oop, "Here's a bit of coffee." Oh, there's Darren's show. His dad killed himself. He's a newbie. Look at him. Oh, it's black and he's from the black country. Oh, bloody hell! Look at that. And that, <laughs> that is literally what they do, and that's how they sell it. I mean, I've, I've heard. Uh, comics and again this is a pretty good question to you because you've been doing this a lot longer than me um, do you think now with the fringe mm. in terms of the comedians who come and do it do you feel like they all feel like they have to have a USP a unique selling point because I've been in I was in uh, the, the loft bar which obviously is probably not the best place for <laughs> a genuine uh, opinions <laughs> but there was a comedian in there who was like I just don't know what my USP is. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I didn't know what that meant at the time. I was like, what was that? He goes, my unique selling point. I feel like I need a unique selling point. I mean, I know you talk about your dead dad and his drug dealer and that. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like oh yeah, well, lucky me. Yeah. And, and he was like, 
it's like, ah, oh, well, my parents, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they divorced when I was in my late teens. So I can't, I can't really talk about that because it, I mean, it sucked, but I was already, I was already at university doing a degree. My nan died. I think that's going to have to be my unique selling point for it. Isn't my nan. And I was just like, what is happening? Yeah. I think the thing is that because there are 750,000 million of us yeah. attempting to do comedy and there's about four jobs <laughs> and the fringe is seen as the fringe is actually irrelevant you can you can destroy it, the fringe and never work again and yeah. it's happened to people what people are trying to do is they're trying to say who you are to commissioners so if I'm pitching you for a show I'll go right it's got a dead dad right it's from the black country gangs blah 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 here you go me, I'm the Scottish lesbian, the feisty Scottish lesbian. That's what I am. And I'm going to say, you know, they say feisty because that means I've got opinions. And one of the interesting things, and I spoke about uh, depression and mental health in my show, so I'm now the depressed feisty Scots- Scottish nice. lesbian. Nice, And actually, it was just because I think as in stand-up, I want to talk about things that I know about. Yeah. I'm very, very aware of not attempting. So when I talk about diversity and inequality, I'm talking about me as a gay person still being treated appallingly in this country and it's getting worse again when two women can get beaten up on a bus just for sitting next to each other. But what happens is you become that you become that uh, box that's ticked, yeah. and you must know what that's like. Yeah, yeah. I've had I've had phone calls. Anytime there's like a, a gang related stabbing or something, they're like, "Oh, does Darren Harriet want to come?" I'm like, first of all, why are you asking me? Because oh, what? Because I, I I talk for a living. You think I'm? Do you want me to be funny about this situation? Like I don't really want to be known. Uh, do you know like how uh, John Barnes is like the racism guy who just yeah. said, "Hey guys, there's been a alleged racism. Get John Barnes on the phone." <laughs> I don't want to be the the guy who turns up for uh, any black gang related <laughs> stuff. It was it was no, nothing like what they're doing. I just understand what it was uh, like for me. Can I just say something? As well? I just remembered a quote that I heard from you mm-hmm. about mental health that stuck with me, and I think I'm gonna butcher it. Okay. But um, um, I think you said something like. Uh, um, um, the glass is half full but I don't think I deserve the glass yes yes. and I always I I remember hearing that and going fuck that is like poetic yeah that kind of that really stuck with me I don't remember where I heard it maybe it was a podcast or something yeah but it was a while ago and I remember going shit and I think you said it and I think the audience went Oh. Yeah, no, they all go, oh, you'll be so. And yeah. it's like, no, this is just how my head's been for the past that's 40 beautiful, years. That's a beautiful line. If, if there was a poster of you, that has <laughs> to be. That's so great. Feisty Scottish lesbian yeah. says I don't deserve a glass. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. But when you were talking about, because this is a... 
and the first series of Mrs. Brightside <coughs> was very helpful for people because people were talking about stuff they hadn't necessarily heard people talking about before. Yeah. And for you and your family, so you talked about this on stage about your your dad. Yeah. yeah. Did you ask your family beforehand whether or not you should or you could or was it just something you did? Yeah, see, that's 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 a very interesting question. I never did. I never, I never, because I'd moved to London. I told them I was doing a solo show at Edinburgh. And obviously, you know, families alive when it comes to stuff like, what? what? Very working class. What are you doing? And uh, they knew I did stand up, but um, they didn't know the show was about my dad and my mom and all that sort of stuff. So that was like a new for them. But they never questioned me on sort of content. I think my mom one time said to me, she says, Darren, don't don't be mean about your dad. And um, and that always stuck with me because there was every reason to be mean about my dad. I mean he wasn't it was it wasn't necessarily a great guy, not to my mom anyway. But um, I never asked them. And I've just done a radio, BBC Radio 4 series, a four parter and one of the episodes is about my family and my mom. I talk mainly about my mom and my dad. And my nan, and I never asked them. I've never asked my family for any any of it. Um, but I feel like my family now know more about me than they ever did because it's all it's all stand up. Like they didn't know about the gang stuff. They just knew I was a little sort of wayward kid. But they didn't know that I carried a knife for a bit as a as a teenager. They had no idea about any of that. So that was all new to them. Uh, it's weird how your family, my family now know how I see things, how I was seeing things, especially when I was younger with the relationship between my mom and my dad and uh, what my dad was up to. They didn't know, because you know we, we're not the sort of family who talk about that sort of stuff. Like I I love my mom, my mom loves me, but we never said it. Yeah. We sort of live in that household where my mom was a cleaner, she worked every day to put a roof over her head and food. That was all the affection we, we needed. Yeah. And I always appreciated that. So now they are slowly learning more and more about me through um, not uh, they, they don't really learn anything about me from TV you don't, it's all very sort of superficial but they've listened to the Radio 4 series they listen to the pod, any podcasts I've done where I've talked about mental health they they um, they learn about um, when I wanted to kill myself a few years ago and uh, it's all it's I, I, I try and limit sometimes what's out there but it also conflicts with my beliefs of just being honest and letting it all out there on stage because Anything that I do, say I was offered a really big gig, TV thing, change a career thing, I would speak to my family about that first because I know that everything about the family would get brought up. So I know, like, I know, like, the stuff about my dad would get brought up and there's a good chance there's gonna be extra shit that I didn't know about my dad being brought up by papers and stuff. So I would always make sure I would ask my family about that because I know that, you know, it's not just you anymore. It's me and my family. Can I tell you how to do it? So when I did Strictly Come Dancing, Jesus. I was fine about it because I'd written my book, Cheer Up Love, yeah. which contained everything you ever needed to know about me in 2014. And so I knew that there was nothing that they could find on me yeah, that yeah. I hadn't already written about myself. And that was actually a huge relief because I knew the papers and I also knew my parents had read that book. Yeah, yeah. So I knew they knew about it. And I knew that they couldn't dredge anything up on me because I'd already yeah. said it. Because did they, I was did they try? Yeah, they did. The front page of one of the newspapers, <clears throat> I tell a story in the book about when I worked on death row yeah. in America and uh, someone pointed a shotgun at me. Jesus. And the front page of one of the newspapers, whilst I was on um, Strictly, said so a gun shocker of Susan Kalman. And I was getting texts from people saying, are you okay? And I was like, no, this happened 
10 years ago and then there was another paper that had that had suicide shocker of yeah. Strictly Star now that upset me because my parents would walk into a shop and see that newspaper yeah, and whilst we've yeah. talked about it it's, it's it's not a nice thing yeah it's, I mean it's, it's the number one thing that puts me off doing anything like that is is the impact on my family because if you look at it dad was a drug dealer drug addict oh we can drag up his dad's crimes great we can do all that oh he was also in a gang oh we can we can tie him into any sort of gang thing that that goes on um you know then he works to balance the security guard oh what what was that you know i do really think about that a lot because i i, ju- I my family i just want my family to just like have a normal life the last my biggest worry is like what you just said your family going into a shop or whatever and they see and seeing on the front page. Yeah. The thing is, what what I think I object to is, um, human beings have an amazing capacity to change. So when I was 16 years old, I was very depressed and tried to kill myself. I'm 44 years old now, and I look back on that person, and I, I, I'm not that person anymore. Yeah. But what people do is they refuse to let you change. Yeah. So you can talk about things, but you're not necessarily that person anymore. Whenever I do... Uh, book events where I talk about things I say to the audience I, I may cry at any point I'm okay because yeah. everyone always goes oh my god she's going to go and try and kill herself again and you go no I'm, I'm absolutely fine <laughs> but I, I still find talking about it difficult Yeah, because yeah. the other thing is no matter how much you talk about something it still affects you yeah. when you talk about it so you, how's your mental health you said there at that point and if you don't want to talk about it it's fine that you'd considered oh yeah yeah so it was um, um, so I moved to London September 2014 um, but I was ready to kill myself April 2014 so it was I was um, uh, 20 25 and uh, I was really depressed and sad about my career and what was happening and I, so I got into comedy uh, at college um, I saw a flyer for a, a, a talent show night and one of the things said comedy on it and I was like yeah I've always wanted to do this but I hated comedy because college for me was just like school. What did you study? Oh man, I did a BTEC drama, which I mean, you, you, you're not even studying at that point. <laughs> you're, just, you're just turning up and reading Shakespeare off a payphone. It was embarrassing. <laughs> and, uh, but I was, all, I was quite depressed. So what happened was my dad died in March 2000. I was 11. I started sort of high school, September 2000. So I never really got a chance to deal with my dad's death. It was like, he's dead. But then high school, oh, puberty, uh, new school, friends, lessons, classes. What am I doing? Busy. And then that's when me and my friends started this gang and then throughout high school I was just occupied you know it's, it's, it, you forget how much of a nine to five being at school is it's crazy every day and um and then when I left I started college and I hated college and I didn't know what I was doing and I remember like all these thoughts of my dad uh you know five years uh, since his death was all just coming back and I was just really sad and depressed and didn't know what I wanted to do and I hated it hated everything so then I started comedy started comedy when I was 18 and uh comedy was was great and it it kept me occupied again it was just this new obsession to come to come and then 25 I was just sad and I was like what is happening in my career nothing is going on I'm depressed I feel like I did uh, when I left school again and um yeah I remember I was on my way to a gig in in I think Wolverhampton or something I was on a train and I just like crying I just like bursting with just couldn't stop crying and everybody was just looking at me like what is going on and um I remember, I remember the way I felt on that train. Um, I think about this every time I get a little bit sad or depressed. I think if I had a gun, I would have blew my head off. Mm-hmm. Like, no question about it. 100% would have absolutely took my head off. That feeling I had on that train when I'm just, just bursting in tears in front of people 
would have absolutely have killed myself. And I got off, uh, I remember I got off the train and I, I didn't go to the gig. I just, I, I remember I brought a lot of pills and some alcohol and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I remember I went to, back to where my, uh, where I was living at my mum's and I went to the local park and it was like a park I used to go to with my family and my dad and all that. And I remember I just sat in this park and I was just crying and I had uh, uh, tears and all this sort of stuff. And um, I remember there was like, a, there was like, you know, it's a parks of graffiti all on the, all on the floor. And uh, I always remember there was, somebody had wrote a number on the floor and it said, uh, call this number if you want a hug. <laughs> I didn't call the number because yeah. I, I thought it would have, hello, is this for hugs? But <laughs> I remember it always stuck with me there that there was this number and I did something I'd never, I'd never done before. I went home and I told my mum. Me and my mum, we don't talk about anything like that. We, we, you know, it was very much sort of like a, a boss and a, a student, um, a co-worker type thing. And I told my mum and she saw me crying and she saw the, 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 all the pain, I brought shit out of painkillers and, and alcohol. And my mum just, she didn't know what to do. So she called all the family and all the family came around and I had this moment with all my family. And, um, and my mum couldn't believe it because my brother has mental health issues now. And uh, he, he, he's 32, he doesn't leave the house, he's got psychosis, he doesn't talk to anyone, he's just, he lives at my nan's because there's someone always there. And um, my brother doesn't, he doesn't interact. And my mom, what surprised her was that it was me. I think my mom thought my brother would have been the one to like want to kill themselves because my brother doesn't do anything. I'm seen as the guy who's, he's working, he's doing this comedy thing, yeah. he's got friends, da, 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 da. he's seen as the, so that was a surprise to her because she was always worried that he would he would be the one, and um, and I spoke. I speak of my family. I remember I just brought a car around that time, and then I sold the car. I brought the car in like June, a few months after, and then I sold it. And I was in London September. I, I just decided. I've said right, all the things that normally make most people my age happy, as in family, uh, kids, mortgage, good job, all that. I have none of that, so. I should just go to London and just really pursue it. And, uh, and then I moved to London on my 26th birthday, uh, 1st of September. And I, I went to London and for my family, that was, that was scary because three months ago, he was ready to kill himself. And now he's moving to London. He's actually moved away from all of his, all from the, the people. support network exactly. that they were providing. Yes. Exactly. So they were really, really worried about it. But it was the it was the best thing I've ever done because within a year I I, I I my career just I mean it's been insane what's happened in London for for myself in the past five years and I felt so much better I have not felt the way I have on the train I think throughout school I think throughout high school I was really depressed really depressed. but again you're just busy with school you take it out you know you you're, you're busy with your friends trying to be cool and all that i was m madly depressed still not really dealing with my dad's death and what was going on and my mom she's never been we never really spoke about my dad's death properly because my mom's just not she's not good at that sort of stuff so doing comedy it really it it also i think doing comedy i mean i was also a teenager when i started but i think comedy really helped me turn into like an actual grown-up because um, two years before I started doing comedy, I was hanging about with buddy, my friends, thinking we're a bunch of gangsters, literally trying to be like the So Solid crew. Yeah. And then two years later, <laughs> I'm, on a, I'm on a motorway heading to Brighton with three 40-year-old middle-class white comics. <laughs> it really helped me sort of grow up yeah. and get out of that sort of world completely. And I really thank, I really thank comedy for that and, and, and the journey. But um, since I've been in London, it's been, it's been really nice. But now, 
I've gone the opposite way where I'm like, okay, career's going really well. I think I need family, house, something going on now other than career because what's happened is, and I talk about this in my new show at the moment, I've just focused on comedy, focused on my career. What's next? This TV show, right for this, new show. <laughs> but everything else at home is just, there's just nothing there. But there's a, there is definitely a, I mean, there's a, the ba- one of the traits, and I'm not saying this is you, of someone who has depression, anxiety, whatever it is, is that we focus on one thing. Yeah. I mean, my wife says I'm a workaholic. And, and I, mean, I think there's worse things I could be, honestly. Yeah, I could be a drunken cheat, as I say <laughs> to her. But I do, I love working, I love working. And when I stop working, that's when I sit in my house and go, jeez. Do you, get, do you go on holiday? Do you make holidays? No. I, 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 yeah, no. see, this is the thing. People, I speak to friends and they go, oh, but you're free, you don't have a boss. You can go on holiday whenever you're not. I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm so worried about what, my, what I might miss, my career, yeah. what would happen. I can't book, I've got 10 days in my diary currently free. and it, I'm, I'm panicking because I'm like, I, I can't. I Last can't two weeks it. of August, because the fringe is still on, I'm taking it off. Yeah. But I'm still going to be in my house and available for emails from my agent at any point. Exactly. You can so, never get away from your Last emails. time we went on holiday, it was a free Strictly cruise. Yeah. So I was technically working the entire <laughs> time. But one of the things, I, I think it's really interesting what you're talking about, that feeling on the train of um, there are depression snobs and I'm not being a depression snob. But that feeling of people talk about comedians being sad clowns and depression and anxiety, that feeling of utter despair, that just, I think it's very difficult if you've never felt that complete and utter blackness in your head where you're thinking the worst possible thing to do to yourself. It's an extraordinary thing. I actually think, I think it gives me more empathy with people. I always try and look positively at my anxiety and stuff, and it means that I have more empathy f- towards people because I've been in one of the, the worst head spaces possible, yeah. and I've got through it. And I've never been as bad as that ever since. That was, you know, because I work on it, I spot issues. I can tell when I'm becoming anxious. I can tell, and I try and do something about it. But that that it's a terrible place to be in. Mm. As and this is me because I'm not a, I'm not a man. And I'm constantly reading how difficult it is for men to talk about things. Do you think it is worse um, or more difficult for you? I mean, it seems like uh, maybe the past year, year and a half, that it's all men's mental health. I mean, if you look at, um, what was it called now? Uh, Movember. Yes. Used to be purely prostate cancer. Movember, get checked out. Now it's all mental health. Even at like the gym, it says, you know, mental health, men come out. Um, it's nice to see, but I, I still definitely think there is a, an issue, especially with like black men as well. Black men do not talk about their mental health at all. Black, in a lot of black culture, it's all super uh, machismo-y, masculine. You do not break down. You do not talk about anything, you know, any of that sort of stuff at all. So it's very hard for a lot of, uh, especially black men to come out and talk. But yeah, it's, I, I feel like it is getting better. We are doing, there is a lot more campaigns about mental health. And I think some of the statistics, especially in terms of male suicide, what biggest killer under 40 or whatever, is yeah. like, it's is huge. People are like, well, we need to come out and talk, but um, it's not, obviously it's not perfect, but it, it's, it's definitely getting better. And I, I tell you, I've noticed the change within the past, Maybe year, year and a half, where it's just a constant. You you never you never go very long without hearing about 
men's mental health. Let's talk more. I think podcasts have played a massive part in that because there's a lot more men, especially long form discussions like this, where you just sort of talk and you're able to let it all out. Mm -hmm. I think it's much better now than it used to be. Do you think though, I mean, in terms of when I see this is, I don't know this at all. Yeah. When I, uh, so I'm 44, when I left school, you went to university, you went to college, whatever, there were jobs. Now when I drive around Glasgow, which has extreme poverty, has extreme uh, problems as other cities do, and I look at young people, especially young young guys, and I think, what, 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 do you have any dreams or aspirations that you're allowed to have? And I think one of these things about mental health and young people's mental health is whether or not I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be a hitman or a long distance lorry driver. Yeah. When I was younger, at least I had ambition. <laughs> Sometimes when I speak to young people, what upsets me is their lack of. They don't think anything is achievable. There's just this air yeah. of despair. Yeah, it, it is. It is especially yeah, millennials for sure. There is constant despair. I mean, every time I, especially in London, you always hear about how millennials don't rent the rest of their lives because apparently they're spending their money on things to look cool. I, I read an article that said millennials now, their, their, their mortgage is their clothing. That's, they, they spend so much money on the nicest shoes or whatever and accept that they're gonna rent for the rest of their lives because that is what matters to them. And that obviously that's like superficial mm -hmm. nonsense. That's not gonna help anyone. But in terms of the, the rise of social media, I think social media is a massive part to play in people's dreams because uh, my cousin is uh, nine and he already wants to be an influencer. He wants to be a social media guy. He's like, they're living the dream. They open boxes they online. I wanna be a YouTuber. Yeah. That is the dream. And yeah. It, it's it's a very nice dream, I guess. You 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 literally just open boxes in your house and you get money for that. So I think a lot of young people look at social media influencers and these stars and they go, well, why can't I do that? Nobody wants nobody wants the normal jobs anymore. Nobody wants the very simple normal jobs. I'll tell you what I needed yesterday, Dan. I needed a roofer. I didn't need a YouTuber. I needed someone to oh. fix my dripping roof. Oh. That's all I'm gonna say. I just needed someone to fix my roof. I think my uh, nieces. A seven, yeah. eight, approximately, and one of the one of the things, and you'll have had to deal with this as well. We all develop a strategy for social media, yeah. Which is you're on mock the week, you're on whatever it is, and you get comments. Um, mine will be different from yours. I imagine you're not called a fat dyke. No, I, I get a, I get a lot of teeth stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, and it's quite hard because you never know the tone. <laughs> I'm like, are you are you going at me or are you a, are you a fan? Apparently, <laughs> apparently, people hate my hands. Well, you're on TV more than me. Yes. So when what what will happen is is that if I get on TV as much as you, I'm sure I'm sure they might they may mention the fact I'm black. <laughs> do you think that might? It, it might start. It might start creeping up. Here's the strange thing. Here's the constant dilemma I had, and I just did my Radio Four series. It's coming yeah. out. And the first episode, my wife's on stage with me. And whenever I talk about my wife or being gay, I get tweets saying, shut up about it, Susan, it's all fine. Now, from my point of view, it's not fine. No. It's, things are not fine. As we talked about, two women on a bus getting beaten up, schools and parts of the country not wanting to teach about LGBT yeah, issues yeah. because, heaven forbid, we might infect their children with our gayness. Yeah. <laughs> so from my point of view... <laughs> I want to keep on bloody talking about it because one of the reasons I was so depressed and anxious as a teenager was the fact that I thought what I was was wrong or yeah, strange yeah. or 
um, the inherent homophobia I experienced, it puts a pressure on you. So, of course, I'm going to keep on talking about uh, it. Uh, when did you sort of realise that you were sort of gay? Oh, uh, from the first time. I've That's never. Fucking amazing. I, I have been a gay. I, so you've been no against all, literally all your... There was never an issue ever. Never an issue. I've never found men attractive. I've always known I was different. So in my head, I never thought being gay was wrong or weird because it's all I've yeah. known. But growing up in the 70s and 80s in Britain... Jesus. And, you know, I grew up through the AIDS crisis, yeah, through yeah, Section yeah, 28, say, yeah. the gay plague. You are made to feel subliminally wrong. And I think... I think in a, in a way any any minority. Yeah. You know I rewatch on the buses. Yeah. And interestingly, it's so fascinating. They never show the racist episodes anymore. No. But the homophobic ones are fine. Oh really? So there's still a few episodes. They had a fashion show the other day, and they were wearing pink suits and mincing yeah. around. Because homophobia from these old sitcoms is still fine to yeah. show. But that's what I grew up with. And subliminally, whether or not we know it, if you are not straight white people, I think you're kind of told that you're a bit wrong. Yeah. I was, anyway. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I mean, uh, going back to sort of you always sort of being um, gay, when do you, do you think that was a worse period? As in, like, if you said to me, oh, uh, Darren, uh, let's say I'm the same age as you, Darren, when was the worst time you thought it was being a black person? Yeah. my initial stance would be to go like, oh, well, from like the 70s, 60s, mm-hmm. but like there might have been a period in the 80s. So like when you bring up when AIDS came up, did that make it a lot worse then or was it already? Yeah, I mean, I remember at university even uh, 1992, people not wanting to sit beside me because they thought they'd get AIDS from me. Now, wow. I'm, a, I'm a lesbian. There's no, there's, we're the lowest risk group for anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? We really are fine. Wow. But that's... Section 20, I remember billboards in Glasgow. There was something called the Keep the Claws campaign. And they put leaflets through all the doors, basically saying we were all paedophiles. And that this legislation should, because we were sex criminals. Yeah. And that's why people equate anything to do with gay when you go on the internet in hotels and stuff sometimes websites are blocked like Stonewall or Diva yeah, magazine yeah. and it's because the word gay means sex oh. so anything to do with gayness we must be shagging we must be fucking ourselves blind because we are still overly sexualized as a group yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and all we do is have sex we're actually very boring but the prejudices and stereotypes of gay people, whatever anyone thinks, yeah. are still there because they think it's all about sex. My auntie said something. My auntie's a lesbian. She said something like that as well, that it's very sort of highly sexualised. You tick every I fucking box. I'm telling you, my family... Don't my, you? Jesus, Dad. My mum is also... Leave da- some for the rest of us. My mum's dating a white guy as oh, well. Jesus, I'm telling you. It's a, a sitcom waiting to happen here, yeah. <laughs> right. God, I hate my mother and father and their normal jobs. (laughs) But when you're talking about all of these... One of the reasons I love stand-up is we all have our stories. Yeah. Now, you've got Edinburgh shows for the next 10, 15 years if you want to inside you. Even talking about what we're talking about just now is a different course. Yeah. Even to any other podcast that I've done. And I've found talking about things has really helped me formulating them into something funny has challenged me to address the issues I've not addressed before. Mm. Do you find that 
that's what happens with you. You can take something which you don't necessarily want to face but turn it into something funny and then you can talk about it more. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to do that. Especially when you're talking, say, for example, my dad's death because... You know, it's it's quite easy to do a, a suicide joke, but I don't want to take the piss out of my dad. I want people to know that, you no, know, it really meant a lot to me, and I am sad about this. But it is that fine line of trying to get the, the, the laughs in, but at the right places where it doesn't feel like you're, you know, kicking my, my dad for the sake of a joke, you know? Um, which is probably the hardest thing maybe I've, I've, I've ever had to do in comedy, I think, is when it becomes that personal. And you, but you want to set the right tone. Because even when I do, the, even when I talk about my dad, I am still thinking about like my mom and my family and all that. And I, I, I don't, I think, I feel like they're okay with what I've done. They're probably not overly happy with the fact that I'm necessarily talking about the family in a way, because you know, but I think they're happy with the way that I've dealt with it. Because I've dealt with it in a respectful way and not like, you know, sold my dad out I guess for the sake of a it's always of my greatest concern my family mm. uh, my mum and dad have never seen me do a stand up show mum's never seen me neither I would ne- I, their photographs are up at a box office do not let these small Scottish people in <laughs> I will not have them near me when I'm doing a show I can't yeah, I, I couldn't I couldn't say some of the things I said if I could see them in the audience yeah yeah. it's like I've got no filter yeah. but I've got one blockage and that's my that's my parents they're the, they're, the, they're the people you really 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 care about and you really don't want to hurt because you know you know what they sacrificed for you and the fact that you're now I, I, there was always that part of me where I'm like oh, I'm doing art <laughs> I'm, I'm doing art like my mum's a bit cleaner carer very working class sort of jobs and I'm just on the stage at a, a very fancy art festival doing art talking about them and the, the idea of my mum was in the front row oh I, I've, I don't know that would happen when you go back home though so when you were at high school yeah. and you were distracting yourself or whatever from what you were really feeling because I think busyness does help yeah I sometimes think when I go back to certain places, I've never, I went back to my school. Yeah. I was very unhappy at school. Yeah, yeah. For a school reunion. Oh, you went to one? I went to the school. Oh, how, how long ago? How long but after t- school? But, well, it was, a, it was a 20 year reunion. 20, okay. 20 year reunion. Oh. And it was, it was very strange. It was very strange. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes it gives me, you get a gut punch because you walk pl- past somewhere or you remember something. When you go back to the people that you knew at that time, what do they think of what you're doing now? Um, well, social media is another thing where now, I mean, I think I've got pretty much everyone from my year on Facebook or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets a bit weird because I, I do get messages from people f- on TV and they go, oh, Jeremy, you saw your pop-up on this advert. Oh, and they go, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all nice. But I think for a lot of people, the fact that I've got into comedy is fucking mental because they remember me as being this sort of like kind of funny kid, but I was in a gang, so I was quite tough as well. And the idea of that guy going into doing stand-up comedy is crazy because there's people in school who would have said, oh, you weren't nice to me. You'd bully me some days. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, oh, look, it's like... It wasn't like, you know, give me your lunch money or anything like that. It was more just like name-calling type stuff. And they would say, oh, you bullied me, but I'm glad you're doing well now. Do you think your depression came out uh, aggressively when you were at school? Completely. Completely. Fragile egos, man. Little teenage boys just trying to be cool and whatever. And, you know, if you said so, what did you say about my mum? You know, fuck you, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I was was quite a big kid as well, so it wasn't... I I really knew how to throw my weight around. And I feel... 
I, I, there's no moments in my head that I can go, wow, that was a that was that was fucked up. But I, I feel that the way certain people have responded to me uh, over the past, say, three four years or so since I've been doing, uh, since the standards really been taken off, that they 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 they're happy for me, but they remember what I was like, and they're like, oh, we're glad that you're doing well now because in school you was a bit you was a bit all over the place, mm-hmm. and um, I do feel really I, there is a lot of shame in that as well. I do definitely feel shameful. I feel really really bad because as nice as people are I know that I was a bit of a shit to people when it was completely uncalled for it was a case of a room full of people this person said this I'm going to really say this get everybody laughing and then uh, they're not going to want to fight me because I'm the big kid so I throw my weight around Mm. and um, I know that was like a real typical douchebag kid move but I think um, for a lot of people, they are amazed at the fact that I do stand-up comedy because to them, I was just this guy who was quite mean to them. And uh, I've I've, 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 I've apologised. I've I've said, you know, I'm sorry if there was ever any time where I've made you feel like shit, but I was going through my own issues and Mm. it was school and, you know, mob rules at that time. And I just wanted to be on the side where everybody would be on my team and uh, you never think about that at the time kids don't think you don't about think about it stuff. one no. of the greatest gifts that's ever been given to me is the fact that I grew up in a time before social media oh. and the university yeah, there are no photographs it. of me I I I I'm quite open. I drank too much. I was an I was a fucking arsehole <laughs> at times because I was depressed and anxious and I didn't know who I was and I was I was a twat. Yeah. I was a real twat. And there are no photographs of me. There's no videos of me waking up uh, on a mattress on Byers Road in Glasgow because I had too much vodka. Imagine, There's none of that. Imagine being able to tweet when you had those when you were drinking. So oh. it's great because I worked through all of the really dark, shitty, awful times. Yeah. Because the other thing is, my depression and anxiety sometimes means I'm, atten- I'm an attention seeker. Yeah. That's why I'm a comedian. That's yeah, why I'm yeah, a comedian. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a narcissistic... My wife said to me, is it not enough that I love you? And I said, no. No. I need them to I know. love me. It's, it, I need I, them. Wouldn't, wouldn't our lives be so much easier if we could just be, just be completely fulfilled with that? Yeah, but we're not. We're not. And the thing is, accepting <laughs> that's also okay. Yeah. Um, before we finish up, what I always like to do at the end of the podcast is let my guests say whatever they want. Now, that can be advice, that can be any, anything you want. Oh, wow. As the final word, you know, to your story or to what you want to say. It's your podcast. You say what you want. Um, it's not my Jerry Springer final thought. It's your, very, uh, it's your Jerry Springer. I mean, I'm not saying we stole it. Dan, <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's well, what we're doing. I'm take care of yourselves, Andy Travers. Um, <laughs> God, I'm a kid of the 90s. Um, no, um, uh, this has been great. It's always fun to talk uh, more about mental health. Um, I feel like a lot of people don't. And especially as comedians, people only see the outside of just you on stage, which obviously is what they're putting out there. But there is more to it. Um, yeah, I I'm, I'm uh, I feel good um, mentally. I feel I feel fine. I'm I'm more comfortable in who I am now. You seem very comfortable yeah. in who you are, and I know sometimes we can all pretend, but mm. you, you seem comfortable talking about things and who you are. Just yeah, I, I tell you one thing. I'm, I'm really appreciating the joy of being silly. Oh, I was gosh. never really silly. Yeah. I couldn't be silly. I was always trying to be tough and nah, man, none of that. And like, the, I'm really enjoying the silliness of, of things now because I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy it. 
like I used to. And that's something that I wish I, I wish I did more as a, as a young, even the silliness in school was all behind this masculinity, toughness, don't show vulnerability, don't show weakness facade. Whereas now it's like, ah, I give, I give a shit. It's like, it's just funny. Do you know what I do uh, a lot um, in my house? You can see into my neighbor's kitchen, yeah, like nice. the windows. And uh, sometimes they wave at me and I do, you know that thing you do where you pretend to walk downstairs? Oh. <laughs> I do that every single time that's I go, so- I'm just going downstairs and then, I'm, and then I come back up again. And we haven't got a basement. That's and they great. Know that. And I just, I, I love silliness. It's why I love Morecambe and Wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they were just stupid. They were just yeah. silly. But yeah, I, my thing is embracing what brings you joy and not being ashamed of it. Yeah. So I like mod, I like model trains. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wish, you know what? I need to find something like that because it's, it's so unique and it's such a cool, like a cool hobby. And I'm sure you, you collect them. No, I just go and look at other people's. Oh, okay, wicked. <laughs> Where'd you go to do that? Well, uh, just a model train exhibitions. Okay, stuff. see, that's that's like a nice, cool. All my all the things I'm interested in. Everybody, you know, like comic books and all that sort of stuff. I like all that. I'm very much into that uh, geeky world type thing. But I feel like a model train thing would be really nice. You to, need like, to find, you find you find your little things. Yeah. And then you you can embrace it like one day I'm gonna have one in my garden see that's my dream <laughs> yeah to have so, one there in you my go uh, yeah I need that little that little thing for myself um, thank you this has been really really beautiful actually oh, thank, thank you. you very much indeed good luck for the rest of the fringe are you touring afterwards yes yes I'm touring but, but you can find me on all social media at Darren Harriet H-A-R-R-T everything's up there yeah and I look forward to the sitcom about your your mum's dates and your lesbian aunt. <laughs> I hope I hope it's a casting that I can go for the girlfriend. Nice. And then I can be part of your family. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be the weirdest Great. sitcom oh. of the entire world? Oh, the Daily Mail, I love it. Oh, God, yes, let's do it just for that. <laughs> oh, good. I look forward to it. Thank you, Darren. Oh, thank you. Thanks, darling. Thank you for listening to Mrs. Brightside. If you like the show, why not subscribe? We're available everywhere you can download podcasts. And if you've already subscribed, why not tell a friend? Next week, I'll be talking to Sophie Hagen. So you, you have an idea of how much money, basically, you've spent on trying to be thin. And it's a lot of money. It's one of the biggest industries in the world. So when someone comes in and goes, oh, yeah, all that stuff that you're saving up for, that you're fighting for, that you're working hard for, yeah, I got that for free. I'm actually really happy and I'm loved and I'm beautiful and I have sex and I'm kissing lesbians. Like, I'm doing great. She certainly is right now. It's happening right now. I'm just professional enough to carry on podcasting while it's happening. Susan Kalman's Mrs. Brightside is hosted, appropriately enough, by me, Susan Kalman. The producer is Benjamin Sutton and is a BBC Studios production for Acast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.